definitely if you are like Web3 developer, uh, I know that like a lot of the focus has been on like, you know, uh, maybe like understanding, like just like writing smart contract or like uh, using some libraries and so on, right? But I think um, having more understanding of how the underlying blockchain works, especially the runtime part uh, is quite beneficial. Hello and welcome to another episode of Devs Do Something. Today's guest is Bowen Wang, who is the head of protocol development at NIR. So this episode will serve as a technical introduction to NIR protocol from the point of view of an EVM dev. So Bowen and I discussed a lot of the inner workings of NIR, including things like sharding, asynchronicity on NIR, JavaScript smart contracts, which I find to be an interesting concept, especially for you that uh, I have a very strong positive or negative opinion of JavaScript. Uh, and then we also go into things like Nier's human readable name system and how that actually works. It's actually built into the protocol, which I found interesting. And then we walk through some of Nier's analogs for account abstraction, right? So UX is huge. Nier's really focused on it. And I think it's interesting to hear how someone that's working on the protocol side is viewing this and, and trying to build a roadmap around this. Um, we also discussed how Aurora works, which is an EVM compatible scaling solution built on top of Nier. And I think overall, if you're interested in broadening your horizons beyond the EVM and understanding how a, a, another protocol works at the lowest levels, this episode is for you. The last thing I'll say is that Bowen is a great engineer himself, and he had a lot of good advice, especially at the end of the episode. That's more general advice for Web3 devs that I think a lot of you might get 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 some things out of, right? So he talks through maybe some bad advice he hears uh, given in the space to early career devs and then how he'd go about trying to level up as a, as a dev himself if he were just starting today. So hopefully this episode broadens your knowledge base to other L1s. Hopefully it gives you some education on how maybe Aurora works and gives you some ideas for maybe the things either you want to propose in future ERCs or EIPs into the, like, the Ethereum uh, or build, in building scaling solutions of your own. So again, sit back, enjoy the episode and let us know what you think. As devs, we all love hackathons. They're a great way to boost your skill set, meet other engineers, and add to your portfolio of work. At Superfluid, we've sponsored many hackathons and decided to start putting on a hackathon of our own, the Superfluid Wave Pool. This hackathon is a little bit different though in that it's continuous, it's always open. You can submit any project built on Superfluid at any point throughout the month and have a chance to earn thousands of dollars in prizes depending on how your project stacks up. In just the last couple of months, we've seen dozens of teams build really amazing projects that run the gamut from superfluid developer tutorials to full-fledged applications uh, to a proof-of-concept superfluid StarkNet implementation that we thought was really, really impressive. So we encourage you to check it out today. You can learn more by going to superfluid.finance slash wavepool. That's superfluid.finance slash wavepool. Happy hacking. All right, we're here today with Bowen from Near. Welcome, Bowen. Hey, hi, everyone. Uh, very happy to be here. Yes, it's great to be chatting with you. I'm glad we got connected. Uh, and this is exciting because uh, this is one of the first episodes. We'll, we'll do another one with someone from the Solana ecosystem soon, but it's one of the first episodes 
where we kind of branch out beyond the pure EVM and dive into other ecosystems and how they work. So we're very excited to deep dive near. Uh, Bowen, you are the head of protocol development in near, right? Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, now we're going to get into near. We're going to get into like how to think about near when you come from the EVM perspective. Uh, but before we do that, the first thing we always ask guests when they come on is how they got involved in the industry. So I'd love to hear how you got into crypto. Yeah, it's actually a very funny story. So near was not a crypto uh, company at, at the very beginning. So. Um, before crypto, Nier was actually uh, working on machine learning and, and more specifically, uh, what's called neural programming synthesis. What it does is essentially like teaching machines how to write code. Um, so I know that uh, ChatGPT is, you know, all the rich these days. And essentially like what we were trying to do back then was basically part of the functionality that GPT, uh, ChatGPT has today, um, which is like, if you gave it um, natural language description of like, let's say a program or like a piece of software that you want to write, then it would try to generate the code for you. Um, obviously, you know, uh, four or five years ago, technology was not as mature as it, it is today. So uh, that was uh, very ambitious, but um, I think, yeah, we were just running into like uh, practicality problems. And then uh, it was actually interesting that uh, uh, our co-founder Alex was looking at uh, uh, what kind of applications um, this could be useful for, right? And then smart contract um, kind of uh, um, was like one thing that they were looking at. And uh, I think part of the reason is that smart contract is really like a piece of pretty uh, self-contained uh, software, and then you you don't have you know you really don't have like a smart contract that's ten thousand lines of code, right? It's um, it, it's like your seven hundred lines of code that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it was just like looking at well, how can we uh, apply this to writing smart contracts? And you know, to do that, you first need to understand the smart smart contract. Then that's how you got into blockchain. Then yeah, I think at some point they realized that well, uh, the existing smart contract platforms at the time um, were not um, as good as uh, they could be. Uh, so yeah, I was just thinking about. Uh, how to, what, yeah, what we could, what could we do to design like a better um, system, uh, both um, on the kind of um, blockchain or just like more like the fundamental protocol level now as well as like how to make it easy for people to write smart contracts. That's how Nier got started. I love it. Yeah, that's actually fascinating. I had no idea that that, that was kind of the genesis of of what the near team first started working on. Uh, I'm always fascinated by pivots like that. I, mean, I think it's cool you ended up doing something totally different. How do you think that, uh, that Codex and OpenAI are doing so far with the machine-generated code? Do you use a Copilot or anything like that? Uh, I mean, kind of tried it. Um, but I, I think, yeah, ChatGPT is definitely very impressive. Like, what it has been able to do is essentially, like, yeah, that's, as I said, like, what we were trying to do back then. <laughs> um, so obviously, yeah, very impressive. Good. Yeah, no, I'm I'm excited for what that's gonna gonna open up. At minimum, it, it can help uh, remove the job of writing some boilerplate for us. Uh, so hopefully, hopefully that uh, continues to mature. Yeah, actually, a funny story. One of my colleagues tried um, something like write the uh, basically the input to ChatGPT is like write a um, Discord board uh, bot that would be able to 
um, I forgot what exactly it is, but like a connect to near in some way. And it actually was able to generate like a piece of code that does so. I know. It's very impressive. I've, I've run similar experiments, yeah. like, like transfer a, a token on Polygon and it, 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 it generates yeah. the code, right? Which is interesting. Simple things like that it seems to be able to do. Obviously, like brand new problem yeah. solving is a bit different, but uh, yeah, no, it's, it's right. definitely fascinating. Right. But shifting the, shifting the topic to near a bit. So we were talking off, off camera uh, about our audience so far. And, you know, I mentioned that most people, I think, uh, that listen to the podcast are starting to experiment with different environments, different programming languages. But most people are kind of used to the EVM mental models, right? They're used to the Ethereum virtual machine. They're used to building in Solidity and things like that. Uh, so before we really kind of deep dive uh, some of the specifics of Near, building on Near, like what what mental models in particular are very different for someone coming to near and looking to build on near from the EVM? Like what are the what are the big couple of things that they'll have to wrap their brains around? Yeah, so I think maybe two things, right? One is the on the more maybe programming languages level or like the actual development itself, right? And then the second one is on the um execution model or like runtime. Uh so on, on the first one, uh, you know, usually if you write um if you target EVM today, you're writing likely in Solidity, even though there's some other languages uh, also support compilation to EVM bytecode. Most people today probably write Solidity, right? So Solidity is like a, a programming language that has some similarity, or like uh, it's mostly uh, mostly bears similarity with JavaScript rather than uh, Rust. So if if you come from that background, uh, compared to Near, uh, then I think that is, uh, yeah, maybe like one of the um, big, I, I, yeah, I don't know how much of like a mentorship that would be, but definitely a big change. Uh, so near today also support JavaScript. I mean, we can talk more about that later. So I think that's definitely a easier way for people to get onboarded. Um, and then the second one is that um, if you target EVM, uh, the execution environment is, uh, Likely synchronous. I mean, you let the COC ceremony example, right? You can do things like uh, flash loans, and you can um, just uh, call like different smart contracts in uh, in one function call, and the execution uh, would, would all be synchronous. And on near, the execution mo model is fundamentally asynchronous, and that is um, definitely quite different. Uh, so if you're right, like a single application, like kind of like standalone application. Doesn't really matter, kind of the same. But if you're writing um, things that application that needs to compose with, with each other, that the model definitely uh, would change, right? If you're uh, a DeFi developer, uh, there I think the uh, assumptions uh, needs to change and how you handle, uh, you know, failures of function calls uh, needs to also change. I think those two are the um, biggest difference I see. Interesting. Well, I mean, I, I think people can pretty easily understand like the just writing a smart contract in a different language. And I think that's that's somewhat straightforward. Yeah. Right? And I think most people that build on the EVM, they probably know JavaScript uh, unless they're a rebel and use like Brownie and Python and Viper. Um, but okay, I think the, what you're saying, though, on the, on the second part is that the you're, you're, you're I think you're alluding to the fact that the, the, the model for transactions is a bit different. Right, so there's this concept yep. of like asynchronous transactions, which I think is kind of fascinating. Um, but I think it might be good to just go through like, all right, 
contracts that compose with other contracts are going to be different. You have to handle uh, like failure cases differently. There, there are actions and there are receipts, right? Can you walk through like just what a what a standard transaction would look like on you? Like, can we walk through like what a standard token transfer yep. might look like? Yep, uh, absolutely. So, a token transfer is actually slightly different from uh, a function call, right? So, let's say like you were sending. Uh, so, Alice wants to send one year to Bob. So Alex, uh, uh, Alex signs the transaction and then the science just, uh, sends for some like validator and then the validator, um, uh, encode that transaction in a chunk that they produce. And then through consensus, you know, a block is produced that contains the chunk. And then when the chunk is executed, um, it first, uh, well, first of all, the, the, the chunk we're talking about here is the chunk for Alice shard. So the transaction execution always starts um, uh, in the shard of the sender. So when that transaction executes here, what it does is that it will charge for the for the gas, deduct that from the uh, sender's account, and uh, it will also uh, debit the sender's account because you're doing a token transfer. So Alice would, uh, um, Alice account uh, would now have uh, one year less. And then after that is done, what happens is that a receipt is generated and it's going to be sent to Bob's shard. So how exactly that works is that um, each shard would, uh, in kind of the output of the uh, transaction execution, it will generate this kind of outgoing receipt and the outgoing receipt will also be Merkleized and this Merkle root would be included in the next chunk. And there's like a separate mechanism for the, uh, for the kind of validators in different shards to request um, the receipt from other shard is coming to this shard uh, so that they know what to execute. And they, they can also verify that um, by, through the uh, receipt route that's included um, in the uh, next chunk for the other shard so that they, they know that this is, um, this is uh, authentic information. Uh, and then after that receipt is uh, sent to the other shard, it would execute there. And then um, Bob's uh, account would uh, get one year. And then the transaction would complete. Got you. Yeah, and, and that's one big thing to keep in mind as well, I think for people listening, is that you're making heavy use of, of parallel, uh, parallelizing different like like actual operations, right? That, that's, what, yep. that's what sharding is actually doing. So, yep. Yep. again, maybe it's best to zoom out, well, then we'll come back into the, to the token transfer bit and then ultimately like the, the, the cross contract transactions, but sharding, what's the role of, of sharding here within Near? I think it's quite fundamental, right? So, uh, one of the core premises of Near is that uh, we want to build a highly scalable uh, system. And as, as you probably know, uh, scalability has been like a big concern in the blockchain industry, right? Uh, a lot of people complaining about the low transaction throughput of uh, Ethereum. Um, and then Ethereum itself is moving to like a more uh, kind of sharded uh, design, uh, even though they're taking like some, whether like of a different path. Um, but for Nier, we're basically building uh, sharding into the protocol uh, so that both the uh, transaction processing and the state are both sharded. Uh, so in this design, uh, it sh the, the throughput of the system should be uh, roughly linearly scalable with the number of shards we have. Right. And that should, I, you know, in an ideal world, massively increase speed and throughput, right? Yep. Um, so on, on the, the transaction itself... Is the asynchronicity, is that something that 
is necessary given sharding or is that an extra i guess feature that that's separate beyond sharding that's a very good question um so i think it is necessary uh at some point right so you can do kind of like synchronous sharding to some extent but i think the difficulty is that at least my opinion is that if you want to scale beyond some point, uh, synchronous sharding becomes very difficult uh, just because of the need to get like data in one place uh, in order for you to, to to kind of execute everything synchronously, right? So um, we actually have done some research on that front as well. So the idea is that um, if you want to if you want to think about how it, like I mean, obviously we're talking about here still we want to shard like kind of state and uh, transaction, right? Obviously, if you don't want to shard state, then it, it becomes easier. If you just shard transaction processing, then I think that's definitely a separate question. Like, if you still want to do both, then like essentially what you're trying to do is that you're trying to find some mechanism where you're trying to um, kind of aggregate the state um, on the fly while you're like, essentially like you guys, or let me step, step, step back. Like what you're trying to do is that Let's say you have like a block, right? You have some kind of transactions you want to execute. And in order to execute that, what you're trying to do is that you're actually aggregating all the state that that thing needs across all the shards. There needs to be like a, a step where you do that and then you execute. Um, so that step is actually quite not trivial if you actually um, scale up to like a, uh, like a very large extent, right? Because you need to figure out, well, like how do I actually get the, um, the the relevant pieces of the state, and then how do I aggregate them together, and then then like you know execute them, and then um, uh, form consensus, and then they yeah, move the chain forward. Uh, so at least in the which research that we've done, um, we think that it is possible. But if you want to scale beyond, let's say, I don't know, like one thousand shards, uh, it definitely becomes um, less easy because of uh, most of what I just talked about and also, you know, the data variability stuff and, and so on. Um, so at least in my opinion, if you actually want to have like, you know, really, um, scalable system that would be able to handle, let's say the, uh, web two applications that we see today, uh, I feel like, uh, asynchronicity is almost required. And, and you can also see that from what other chains are doing, right? So if you look at how Ethereum is planning to scale, even though that's like a very different model, fundamentally they are adopting the uh, asynchronicity uh, in their in their thinking, their roadmap, because even though like a layer, like scaling through layer two is different from the design that Nira has, fundamentally you can view that as like a, uh, kind of changing the execution model from synchronous to asynchronous, right? Because even though within each uh, rollup, your execution is synchronous, like, you know, you, you just do whatever uh, you have on the base layer uh, in terms of execution model, but then like you have the step where you have to move things between like the, the rollups. And then there you have no choice but to, to, to be asynchronous because it, yeah, and then uh, if you do that, then you're essentially doing kind of doing what Near does today, except that it's just done on like a 
in like layer two, right? Kind of like outside of the protocol. Interesting. That that is a very very interesting perspective on it. Um, and so as a developer though, like thinking through like all right, how this works, like when a transaction actually happens, what I found that's interesting is that this receipt object, this it's an object, right? It's it's actionable, right? Can you talk about like what this receipt is, like when the transaction is actually confirmed? Like, what is this receipt? What can I do with it? Uh, it seems very similar to like working with asynchronous JavaScript, right? But we'd love to hear you talk about yep, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think the yeah the mental model is similar, right? Re- uh, I think receipt is more like a, a protocol level construct that uh, um, developers themselves don't need to worry a lot about. At least you know that's our thinking, right? We want to reduce the uh, cognitive barrier for developers as much as possible. Um, so ideally, developers don't really need to think too hard about you know how receipts work. The idea is that you know transact after transactions are executed, uh, they will generate receipt, and then receipt will be sent to the uh, destination shard to execute, and then all of those um, are taken care of by the protocol itself, and developers pretty much don't need to worry about it. Uh, the only thing that developers need to care about is let's say you want to have like a, a function call that calls another smart contract, right? Then uh, what what it actually does is that it, it generates like a receipt uh, that's going to be uh, sent to the uh, uh, other shard where the uh, smart contract is to 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 get executed, um, and and then it may kind of and that execution will produce some result that will come back, and then the developer may need to handle that result as well. So yeah, in, in that sense, I think the the model is um, similar to like uh, async JavaScript as you described. Uh, but a lot of the heavy lifting is kind of down behind the scenes by the book. Gotcha. So, like, what kind of like do, does the does the asynchronous aspect here open up other features and, and things that developers can build on near that aren't possible in other places? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's mostly around uh, the scalability aspect, right? And 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 even if you think about um, async in like a from like a programming language point of view, right? Async JavaScript and so on. It, it doesn't do anything that's not possible otherwise per se, right? It, what it what it does is like a better um, performance kind of uh, kind of thing, and and that that is I think similar here. Gotcha. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think that makes sense. Um, so on, you mentioned here specifically that. These asynchronous transactions are the default when you make a like a smart contract to smart contract call, right? So is this is this only the case if I'm like you mentioned in the example of like a token transfer? This doesn't this doesn't happen, right? This asynchronicity is it is the asynchronicity there as well? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, that, that's still async. So I guess the difference I was talking about is that um, in the in the smart contract ex- execution, it would generate like a um, Kind of like a different kind of receipt, but yeah, overall the the execution model is still the same. Like, uh, even if like you're doing kind of a transfer or like function call, we're seeing the same shard. the 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 execution model is still the same. It's like it, it it's um it doesn't really care like whether you're calling something we're seeing the same shard or calling something outside of uh, on another shard because um this would allow us to do like things like resharding, right? Because even though two uh, accounts or two contracts can collocate at this given moment. Maybe, like in the future, they would be sharding to, to different shards so that you know you don't rely on this kind of information. 
um, to uh, to trans to execute transactions. So, how does this relate to like error handling and security for developers? Right, I'm I'm assuming that like yeah, yeah. I saw someone in your docs so like technically you can execute a transaction, but that receipt might do like they're actionable, right? So I might do something on receipt which might fail, right? So there are specific security concerns that developers need to 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 understand when when working within this new model. Yeah, so one one big difference is let's say you're developing on Ethereum, right? Then you have like a smart contract. Um, I don't know, for example swap some like a token on like one DEX and then you use the new token to borrow like some other to token on like a, uh, a landing protocol and then you use that thing to do something else, for example. Uh, it's like a complex chain of calls. Um, and then this call in the Ethereum system, in the Ethereum world, it, it would either succeed or it would fail, right? And then if it fails, then everything reverses back. Um, but on near it's actually different. On near, if you call uh, like another smart contract, um, and then that smart contract calls like another smart contract, then it may come back. Uh, you need to handle the case where like the call, uh, like some in intermediate call fails, uh, and it would not it would revert that part of the call, but it wouldn't revert the entire thing because it's asynchronous. Uh, so you, you essentially you're like um, it's kind of like yeah, JavaScript async way that you just need to handle like the callback. Uh, it's like the, the callback gives you some result. It's like I, either like it succeeded, returns a value, or like says, oh, I, I, I run into an error. Like in the case of an error, you may need to like uh, do something to like handle the error and re revert some part of the state, for example. Gotcha. Yeah, I think that, so that would actually feel somewhat different for a lot of people coming into the near ecosystem from Ethereum. I think yes. that, especially people that are building in DeFi. Yeah, I think, yeah, especially that, because if you're not building DeFi, it's actually quite similar, right? Because you don't really care about calling like, three other contracts in the, in yeah, the same For all company. the people that are doing crazy exotic flash loan things, yeah, that, that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's different, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so let's yeah. tie this all the way back yeah. into our token transfer. Um, so I might have, I, I kind of glossed over this, but, you know, I said token transfer, you went to like, a, like I'm sending near, right? And I think the way you describe like the near token yeah. is that it, like it is a token, right? Like someone would, like in Ethereum, you might yes. describe like a, like ETH is like a native asset, which kind of has different rules than uh, these ERC-20 token contracts. Oh. Is there like an ERC-20 oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. analog? Sorry, is there like an ERC-20 analog on near where like you can deploy a USDC contract? Uh, are those like first-class citizens? Because I know on some chains, like we did an interview with someone uh, at Fuel and like you can basically create your own native assets on Fuel. How does it work on near? Yeah, so on near is actually quite similar to the serum. Uh, so we have, uh, so the fungible tokens is on standard, uh, and it's right now not built into the protocol itself. I mean, that may change at some point in the future, but at least right now, uh, it's very similar to how Ethereum works. And then near token is special. It's like a yeah, native asset similar to, uh, to Ethereum. So in that sense, the model is, uh, quite similar. Got it. Okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. Okay. So that all cleared up a lot for me, actually. And I think it was interesting to talk through a lot of the, the async stuff there. Um, okay, so what about the, the near account model, right? I think there are a lot of interesting things here. Um, can we walk through like the basics of the account model and then I'll ask some specific questions about things like yeah. uh, human readable accounts and and some other stuff? Yeah, so near's account model is definitely different from uh, Ethereum's account model. Um, so, well, one, it is 
it is well, it is still account based, right? So that in that sense is similar to to Ethereum. It's not like UTXO based. Uh, but but like the the difference is that uh, on near every contract is like an account, or like every account could be a contract. Uh, and and every account you can have like zero or one contract deployed on that account. That's that's the uh, what we have right now. In the future, maybe we we can allow like multiple contracts to be deployed on the same account. But right now, it's like either you're just like regular account or you have a, a contract deployed on the account. And then, then if you have a contract deployed on the account, this is just like a uh, what yeah when people say like a, a contract, that's usually what they're referring to. Uh, but the thing here is that the the kind of uh, there's no real distinction on here between like a account and and contract, right? And then. Um, that gives rise to a lot of interesting stuff like um, contract-based account. Like you can use like a smart contract to manage your account. For example, um, 2FA uh, that that some wallets on your has, uh, it's basically like a, how it works is that you have like a multi-sig contract deployed on your account and that allows you to to do like a 2FA because you need like multiple keys in, to sign to, to make sure uh, in order for the transaction to go. Yeah, I mean, what this is, and and I think I saw you like maybe either respond or tweet about this or, or something related, but all of this enables a lot of the account abstraction things that we're all up in arms and debating about on Ethereum right now. Uh, yep, yep. You have a smart contract wallet, right? Which is kind of like step one to enable account abstraction. You ha- And then you have these things yep. called like, you have these access keys, right? Can you walk us through like different access yep. keys and yep. what those enable? Yeah, that's also uh, one special thing about Nier. So Nier has um, two types of access key, right? One is called full access key. This is similar to any other, um, so to, to like keys you have on any other blockchain, you have like full access to the to the account and you, you just do whatever with the account you, you, you want, right? And then it has a special access key called function call access key. Um, what this does is that it restricts access to a certain method on the, on the account. Um, on, on the contract, right? So you can you can say like um, this key can only call um, this uh, method on this uh, contract. And so why is this useful, right? So the, it, it's useful because um, you can actually give this uh, function call access key to like an application uh, to manage it for you, right? Um, so for example, you want to use some application, but you don't want to authorize uh, it every time. Now what you can do is that you generate like a function call access key. You say like this function call access key can only be used to call like some specific method uh, in this contract that is this application. And then this application now owns this access access key. It can send transaction on your behalf. But it's actually fine because it can only call um, the uh, method in that application itself. It cannot like transfer all like your tokens to some other account and can cannot like uh, delete your account, you cannot do any of that. Uh, so, so this is like a way to dramatically improve like the user experience on here because you now essentially don't need to like authorize it every time you want to interact with this application. Like the application just send the transaction for you, like, and you, the user wouldn't even know. Like, the, I mean, they, they wouldn't have to go through the interface of like, you know, signing like a through wallet or whatever that is. Yeah. So I actually, on a related note here, I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with uh, Julian, who's the the founder of Argent. It's a wallet that's gotten some traction. Uh-huh. Uh, yep. He, I mean, he's a big proponent of account abstraction, like on some of the zero knowledge platforms and even Ethereum. And he, he mentioned that they're 
they've rolled out this feature called session keys within their smart contract wallet. Yeah. Where it's a, it's it's very similar to what you just described, right? Like like they're kind of they're gaining traction amongst like game developers, where you could allow someone to basically have access to just calling functions on on your behalf for a certain amount of time yep. or just on a certain contract for a certain couple of functions. And it enables you to basically have a similar login experience like you're used to in Web2 and then interact yep. with the game, right? Maybe spend money, maybe like move tokens around, but it's confined, right? And it allows a developer to have kind of granular access over like what can this account do? And it even gives the, the user control over it as well, where you're not taking away self-custody necessarily, right? You have control over the wallet still, but you are... Yep. Enabling a potentially much, much, much better UX. Uh, so I think that's yep. that's very exactly. cool. That's very cool. How about uh, the human readable names? I find this interesting. So we, so again, like this is another uh, uh, analog here, like ENS or the so the Solana's got their own thing. Yep. Uh, is is like the account is like the, the human readable accounts thing? Is that built into the protocol itself? Yeah, it's, it basically it's like ERS building to the protocol. Very cool. How does that? work exactly is there like a i'm assuming there's no like registry contract this the registry happens at the protocol level can you can you walk us through how that works yeah yeah so so basically how it works is that you have those like uh top level accounts right so let's say near is like a top level account so those top level accounts can only be created by uh like a special account called uh registrar account uh and then once you have those top-level account, each top-level account can create kind of like a sub-account. I mean, sub-account in, in the sense of like the account name, right? So the account name would be like a like bone.near, for example, uh, or like sam.near. Um, so the uh, it's basically like a sub-account on the namespace level. It doesn't actually have anything to do with like a permission control on the account level, right? So it's just basically like near can create bone.near, it can create uh, sam.near, but it cannot create uh, like, uh, for example, uh, Bowen dot uh, Google for example. Um, it, yeah, that has to be created by Google, the account of Google. Um, so that's kind of the uh, the idea. And then right now, what like usually the onboarding flow on here is that uh, people go and create an account through like a special smart contract deployed on the near account that would allow you to like uh, call that and then create a uh, account uh, that. It was like, yeah, a name of your choice for you. And do you, do you ever run into problems with people trying to squat <laughs> squat names or, or no? Yeah, squatting names is actually not free, right? So that's one uh, thing that deters people from doing that. Because uh, in order to like maintain a countdown near, you need to have like a storage locked for um, for the, uh, oh, sorry, you need to have like a balance locked for the storage of the account. Uh, so every time you create a account, you're not, only just paying the transaction fee, right? You're also uh, paying like a small amount of fee to lock the amount of the storage. I'm sorry, lock the uh, token for the amount of storage that the account has. So um, it's actually not very, um, doesn't make like, like a lot of uh, economic sense to for someone to like squatting accounts. Well, I guess if near becomes like, maybe they're betting on near become like super popular, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. I had to ask because that was uh, I've seen that happen with ENS names a little bit. Cool. Okay. So let, let's let's move on to a couple of other things. We'll we'll talk through. I want to talk through the near data model because I think there's there, you guys have built some interesting things even at like the API layer that might be interesting to talk through, and then we'll get into some interoperability and then maybe some future roadmap stuff. So what is like the near data model? How does like the data flow 
work for someone that's building a dApp maybe that, that needs to get data? Yeah, that's a good question. So obviously there's on the basic level, there's like RPC that uh, the, the node just provides, right? And then uh, today in the near ecosystem, there are different uh, providers, kind of data providers. Um, so actually Infura uh, is one of them. They, 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 they integrated near. Uh, then uh, obviously we have our own like RPC uh, is provided. And then like there are a few other RPC providers. Um, but then on top of that, um, yeah, I think uh, there are some like more sophisticated data solutions, right? So for example, we have this uh, kind of like a data in-house API that, that, that we have and that allows you to do um, things that are uh, more than just like what the RPC provides you, right? So the, what the RPC provides are pretty basic, right? You can send transactions, you can query like transaction results, you can um, like query some, some other, other stuff, but it's all pretty basic. If you want to do something with, let's say, uh, like FT or like, yeah, fungible tokens, um, it becomes pretty uh, cumbersome to do that. And then uh, that's what the kind of in-house API is for. Gotcha. Is that like the, you guys have a query API and enhanced API? Are those where people yeah, should go to look yeah, for this like decentralized services? Yeah, it would like together at some point. Basically, like, the idea is to have like one API that provides all the uh, data needs that, that people have. Is there like a subgraph equivalent where if I have a contract that's spitting off events, I can make it easier for people to query data based on that? Yeah, 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 exactly. That's kind of the, the goal, right? You can think of the, uh, uh, the house APIs like a, a custom build subgraph for near. Gotcha. Okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, okay. How about some some of the interoperability things? So there's a couple of initiatives that enable people to build on near in a way that they're probably used to and then also to, to bridge back and forth between the evm and near or at least uh aurora and and near so let's let's talk through aurora first and we'll go through the the rainbow bridge so what what is aurora what's unique about it uh and yeah we'd love to just just the overview yeah aurora is pretty much this um compatibility layer between near and and ethereum right and and now near uh what it does is that uh, it provides this um uh, kind of like vault or like enclave um, that it, that underneath runs the like runs an EVM interpreter as a smart contract, and then people can deploy their um, uh, smart contract into this vault, and then uh, this uh, the the experience is, is essentially the same as as uh, they were if as as if they were developing uh, a serum, they can deploy the smart contract into this vault. The execution within this vault is synchronous because they can, uh, you can call the um, other contract that's deploying this vault. And yeah, and then like underneath it just draws like one uh, EVM interpreter is like smart contract. So it's like a two layer uh, virtualization. Um, and then uh, obviously Aurora also has like a bunch of uh, things that makes it easy for developer to interact with uh, this thing, right? It has uh, like relayer that. Uh, um, make it easy for people like to uh, send transactions uh, because like you actually need to do some kind of conversion between like near and then the serum tokens and uh, and and yeah basically like there's some kind of conversion that that's happening uh, but that's kind of like down through like relayers uh, and overall like the experiences and and the relayer pretty much provides like a, a web three uh, like uh, the sorry it provides just like a RPC that's like compatible with uh, serum and then. Uh, the entire, the overall, the entire experience is 
um, very much exactly the same. Got you. Okay, so say I am like Ave, right? And I want to okay. deploy on Nier. You got, they already actually might be on Aurora. I'm not sure. But let's say that they decided to deploy I on think Aurora. they are. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure either. <laughs> okay, let's say they have yet. Yeah, they're listening to this and, and they want to. Um, what does it look like for them? I mean, it's just literally I take my contracts, I deploy yep. it on Aurora. And then yep. I'm assuming that like, what am I paying transaction fees therein? Am I paying it in, you, in you're here? Paying east. Yeah, you're paying, you're paying in east. east. And yeah, you're essentially paying east to the Relayer. Relayer would cover that to near, then it, it, it would send, send, like, it would pay the actual transaction. It would pay the near transaction in, in near. Interesting. So, is this then a way? Is, so, I'm assuming this is then an easier way for someone, a project like Ave or maybe yeah. some other DeFi project or game to interface with the rest of the near community right yep. these these yep. okay got it so in this is this what the rainbow bridge enables is the rainbow bridge a bridge between aurora and near or is that like between near itself and and ethereum yeah it's actually between near itself and, and ethereum uh so yeah it's like a bi-directional bridge and the uh, rush kind of light client the smart contract on both sides and then uh how it works is that uh, essentially pushing like a, a light client rocks into both smart contracts, and then you can use that to uh, verify the transactions and state transition. Got it. Okay. So yeah, people are people are familiar with what that kind of thing looks like. But what about between Aurora and and Near? Like, how would that interoperability work? Yeah. So I think the Aurora team is actually working on uh, making the uh, making the interoperability happen between the Aurora vault and the uh, native Near smart contract. So. Uh, essentially, they build like a, a solution that allows um, the native smart contract, oh, sorry, a smart contract with, within the Ethereum, um, within the Aurora vault to call um, a uh, na native near smart contract and then uh, vice versa. I think that is still like in the works, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's very exciting. Yeah, that is exciting. That could be really interesting. And then, so on Aurora itself, are there performance improvements that someone could? You know, let's say Ave, Ave or the other DeFi project example, like what kind of performance gains would they see by deploying on Aurora as opposed to another side chain or layer two in the Ethereum space? So I think one of the nice things that uh, Aurora has is that because it's just like a smart contracts on Near, right? It gets all the nice properties of Near, for example, very fast finality, like, you know, two to three seconds finality compared to Ethereum, that's like huge improvement. And also like very cheap transaction fees. I think there's like a comparison table somewhere, but I think um, Aurora is definitely one of the cheapest option if uh, you want to, if someone wants to deploy on like a EVM compatible chain. Interesting. And then on Aurora, are there like, a, is there like a, these, I'm just saying to the questions that people ask, because I've, I've been in these conversations before when you're like considering deploying on a specific network. I'm just asking basically on the yeah. checklist. Uh, is there like a like a block explorer equivalent for Aurora? Yes. I mean, I'm assuming yes. Near obviously has that, but does does Aurora yes. have its own explorer? Yes, yes, it, it does. I think uh, it integrated some. Um, I think it already integrated Ether Scan, if I remember correctly. But but it also has this like a uh, has its own or maybe like a, some other like block explorer that's like fully Ethereum compatible. Because without that, it's actually the experience will suck, right? Because you cannot on Near what what you're viewing is like some like serialized stuff that you don't actually know what's happening underneath, right? So you need like a uh, a custom uh, explorer just for that. Interesting. Okay, that makes that makes sense. That, that's cool that that's been all set up. I feel like that's underrated. I feel like more people should know about Aurora and... Yeah, yeah. I mean, more people 
<laughs> definitely more people should know about it. Yeah. Maybe this episode can help you. Maybe this episode yep. can help you. Uh, okay. Let's so let, let I mentioned we're going to go into some roadmap stuff. Um, there's two things that I've seen mentioned in various places throughout your docs. Both of them seem interesting to me. One of them I, I really am, am not sure about, but the other one I have, I have some idea what it's going to be about. But meta transactions and zero knowledge light clients. Um, meta transactions, people in the Ethereum space, they're kind of familiar with the concept. But where is that in the roadmap? Is that like close to being available? And, and if so, like how, how will that work? Yeah, it is actually close to being available. Um, a lot of the implementation work on the protocol level is already done. Um, and then we still need like uh, relayers and then integrations with uh, wallets and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, and what it would enable, yeah, I think it's a, a huge step towards a better uh, user experience, right? So today, um, like users have to have near uh, in order to interact with any applications on it, right? So let's say someone sent you uh, 50 like USDC on near, uh, and then you, you're not, your account that, you know, has those 50 USDC, you want, you want to use them, but you realize, well, I don't actually have any near. How do I even, like, I can't actually use it because I have to pay, for, like, my transaction fee, right? So the only option today is pretty much, like, you go and buy some near in order for you to even, like, I don't know, transfer those, like, 50 USDC to somewhere else. Uh, with uh, meta transactions, you can uh, pay uh, transaction fees in, like, any other, um, like, tokens or, like, even fiat if the relayer supports it, right? You can say, like, um, I pay, like, uh, I have 50 USDC, right? I pay this, like, 0.001 USDC to um, this uh, relayer, and then it will send the transaction for me, and then uh, I can just don't have to maintain like my near balance there uh, in order to use uh, application. So this is especially useful for new people uh, who are uh, who are just joining the ecosystem. They may not have like a lot of near, or like they may join because, um, like as I said, like people send them some like stable coin on near. Or like some other reason, uh, but overall, like yeah, this would just be like huge improvement in experience for uh, those users. Yep, absolutely. That sounds really interesting. Um, yeah, I think, and especially, it seems like there's a fair number of games that are interested in, in deploying on near. That's at least what I've kind of seen. That's yep. really helpful for game devs because most people yep. that are just trying to play a game, they don't want to go to uh, Binance or Kraken or Coinbase to buy it. Yeah, so yeah, I think uh, what I didn't mention is that also enable the kind of uh, subscription model, which is very commonly commonly seen in the Web two world. Right? Like, if you want to play like let's say a game or like use some app, you pay let's say like five dollars per month. Right? People are uh, used to that kind of model; they, they understand what it is about. And then, but then they don't necessarily understand that, like why I have to pay like some additional amount of money for for everything I do there. If you if you have a transaction, you can. Literally, like have this model, and then the application uh, basically lumps the uh, transaction fee into that cost, so that the application basically pays the cost, um, pays the transaction fee on behalf of the user, and then they charge the user in like this uh, kind of some uh, subscription fee or something else. Yeah, I think meta transactions have been somewhat overlooked by the space for a while, partially because yep. they're so difficult to set up. But I, I think that for for the next 10 to 20 years, I don't think we can expect, if we want to actually grow, I don't think we can expect to, to pass gas fees off to the, the end users every time for every use case. It just doesn't make sense, right? In some cases, people are used to paying an extra fee. Like with trading, people are kind of used to paying an extra fee when they trade 
right? So I think it might make more sense for some DeFi applications, but for the the end user payment stuff or the uh, even within games, people don't want to pay an extra fee, right? When you go and, and spend money at, at like a grocery store and you swipe a card, the the company who you're buying something from covers the the fee yep. to the debit yep. card, right? So I think that's yep. something we need to consider as well. So very cool. It's on your roadmap. Yeah, and also I would say it's not actually hard to set up, right? Different, this different from is how the value transaction now Ethereum works, and it's because it's implemented um, on the protocol level on near. Like all the applications just get it for free. Like you don't need to do anything special to set it up. Very interesting. So, like as an application, will there, like what what will the like the DevX be for supporting that? Nothing. Like unless so, it depends, right? So if you are using like a third party relayer, then pretty much like nothing, right? Like the application itself doesn't need to care. Like you, users can like use like third party relayer and then to send their transaction. The application developers can just like not care, right? But if they, let's say they want to do like user acquisition uh, and then they want to, let's say, cover some of the costs for like acquiring the user, then they can have like a relayer themselves that, that would just like pay the transaction cost for the users. Gotcha. Gotcha. I see. Okay. That, that's very exciting. How about zero knowledge light clients? Yeah, what are those that all is about? also very interesting, right? So um, one problem today is that uh, a lot of the uh, applications and especially wallets um, in the blockchain ecosystem, they depend uh, on some someone provide them with data, right? This is not just like you need problem to near. It's also happening on like Ethereum, happening on every other blockchain. Like in order for like wallet to function, you have to get like the the data from like some like uh, RPC provider, for example, right? And then you're essentially trusting the data that they provided. They're providing you with like the right uh, balance for like when you query like some specific account. And maybe like you as like a wallet is like operating like a um, your own node to to run to to uh, to provide the data for the wallet. But anyways, it's like you're relying on some kind of RPC provider, and then you either have to kind of uh, eat a cost and then run your own node and then to 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 make sure the data is. Uh, uh, is correct, or are you just like trusting, uh, let's say, uh, Infura, like Alchemy, or whatever that is? Um, and this is actually not great for uh, decentralization. I believe uh, Vitalik actually mentioned this exact point in one of his uh, blog posts. So, what the uh, uh, zero or like what a light client would enable you to do is that, let's say, you run like a light client as part of the wallet application, right? And then uh, it's actually you can verify every single um, like data that every single piece of like a uh, uh, query uh, that 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 you have and then the answer you got, then you can not only just like trust the data that is provided to you, but you can also verify that oh, this is indeed uh, the correct data from from blockchain uh, because you can just do like proofs and so on. Um, and what the zero knowledge light kind does is that it just makes this light kind very very lightweight uh, because you can do like. Um, recursive snarks there, and then it just like makes it very simple to maintain, and and you don't have to um, spend like it, yeah, it makes it like very much feasible for you to just embed that into any like application, whether it's like Word or some other application where like the uh, data source is very important, and you want to make sure that uh, you have the ability to verify that. That's fascinating. Yeah, that is definitely a force to help preserve decentralization for sure. I think there's a risk that you know we love Infura, we love we love Alchemy. They actually do <laughs> right. really good work. But they, you know, if everything is running on Alchemy or Infura, yep. 
you know, that's kind of uncomfortably yeah. uh, yep. compromising on some of the ethos of the space. So yep. I think yep. you're right. Uh, okay, fascinating. Fascinating kind of deep dive on what you guys are working on at, at the protocol level. Uh, how about just some more general stuff here? Uh, how do you guys approach developer experience? Right, It seems like you know, DevX was a, a big focus across your docs and all of your like, the yep. materials on the near websites. Uh, how do you think about it? How do you think about API design, uh, supporting different languages, and this whole idea of building developer communities? Yeah, so developer experience is definitely very central to the entire near ecosystem, right? It's not just like about any any specific tools that we're building or like any specific uh, libraries, specific APIs. Um, I think in order to have a great developer experience, it has to go into like every single layer of the stack, right? From the protocol up to uh, all the way up to some like application level tooling. Uh, so for example, on the on the protocol level, you know, we have those uh, concept that makes developers' life easier, like you know, access keys. Why it both makes both the user life easier and also developers' life easier. Um, and the kind of uh, WebAssembly support makes it easy for you uh, to for us to support like a commonly used programming languages like Rust or JavaScript, um, and um, yeah, all of that. Uh, and then uh, that is what we're doing on the protocol level. And then on the kind of SDK level, right, we have the Rust smart contract SDK, and today we also have the JavaScript SDK, and then uh, then we also have different SDK on the kind of on the client side to interact with the blockchain. Uh, so there are like a whole bunch of things that we're doing, and this is just on the more like engineering side, right? And on the outside of engineering, there's like things like docs um, and you know hackathons that we organize, events that we organize. Uh, so yeah, it's like a lot of things that we're doing to uh, make sure that we uh, not only kind of strive for the best developer experience, but also we uh, iterate on them. Uh, we talk to the community and gather feedback and then improve the experience that we have. Nice. And are there any particular applications or pieces of tooling that you wish developers would come in and build on near? Do you have any requests for, for yes. builds or projects? <laughs> so a lot, actually. Uh, so one thing is that uh, today near supports Rust and JavaScript, right, uh, as uh, programming languages for smart contract, but but that's not really the limit, right? The, so because we support uh, WebAssembly as runtime, uh, essentially, like if you have any language that can be compiled to WebAssembly, then uh, you can support. We can support that language as like a pro programming language for smart contract. So, so for example, if you want to support like C plus plus, if you want to support like Java, that's all like possible, um, and yeah, people can just come in and build the SDK for them. Uh, and then on the kind of uh, more like uh, client-side libraries, right? So today we have uh, a JavaScript SDK or like a library to interact with the blockchain. Uh, I think we also have like a Rust one to interact with blockchain. And then um, people are, yeah, people, I would love to see people building, let's say, uh, like a Kotlin SDK so that you can use that in like a, a Android in, in mobile development or like, you know, iOS SDK. Uh, like uh, sorry, Swift SDK, um, and yeah, so definitely want to see more. Nice. So it's interesting you highlighted different languages a few times there, and, it, uh, and it's it's an interesting choice to go with Wasm. I think that 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 could open up a lot, a lot of different options and yep. different ways developers can get involved in the ecosystem. Uh, what do you what do you make of the whole languages space for developers? Like, do you think that a developer is best 
served by focusing on getting really good at building contracts in like Rust or a, like or Solidity or a specific language, or should they really aim to be polyglots with smart contracts? How do you how do you see that focus or or breadth? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, if if I'm kind of speaking from like a developer perspective, um, definitely I don't want to be restricted to like a, a single language, right? And also for like developer, usually it's not too difficult to learn like a new language. Um, I mean, obviously transition from JavaScript to Rust um, is a bit of like a hurdle, uh, but still I think it's uh, it's like worthwhile because, um, you know, the more like versatile you are, um, you know, the more things you can do as a developer. Um, and, you know, there are, uh, I think also, you know, technology evolves really rapidly these days. And uh, as a developer, um, I want to stay like relevant, right? Keep up with the developer development of the technology itself and so on. You know, I think that's a good answer. Um, are, do you see any other like maybe bad advice that you think that is often given out to like early career Web3 developers? Like, is there anything that you see out there you wish people just ignored or uh, you think they should turn away from? Um, that's a good question. I I haven't seen like a lot of advice specifically for Web3 developers. Um, but I think definitely if you are like Web3 developer, uh, I know that like a lot of the focus has been on like, you know, uh, maybe like understanding like just like writing smart contract or like uh, using some libraries and so on right but i think um having more understanding of how the underlying blockchain works especially the runtime part uh is quite beneficial go low level understand what's happening <laughs> yeah. under the hood like that makes sense uh cool okay so so last question for me um this is a little more general but where do you hope like, what do you hope near looks like in the next five to ten years? Uh, what do you What do you hope is is happening on near? How do you hope the chain has evolved? How do you hope the ecosystem has evolved? Would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, definitely hope that near would get mass adoption in the next five to to ten years. Um, so, Ethereum our co-founder um, put forward this ambitious goal of getting to one billion users uh, in the next five years. Uh, it's definitely very ambitious. But yeah, our goal is that. Um, we're not just building technology in a vacuum, right? We want uh, this technology to actually be useful to people and we actually want it to make like a real impact uh, in the real life. And in order to do that, you know, uh, we have to not just like build the technology itself, but actually get people uh, to use it. So definitely uh, the biggest thing I want to see in the next five to 10 years is that, uh, you know, billions of people start using like applications built on top of near become part of the ecosystem. Uh, and yeah, bring kind of the open web technology to the mass audience. I love it. Good answer. Well, Bowen, thank you so much for coming on and for the deep dive on all things near. I think people that, that listen to this are going to get a lot out of it. Yeah, thanks, Ross, Sam, for the interview. Wonderful. Thanks again.